Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with the brightest and best minds I can find to help inspire all of us to make amazing products, amazing product teams, and amazing product companies. Now, tonight we're going to talk all about getting uncomfortably narrow, but you're hopefully not going to be going so narrow that you don't have any competitors at all. But who are they? If you've ever wished you could simplify competitive research, reduce time, commitment, and effort, but still get extraordinary insights, why not try Super Products' new course, which teaches you how to unlock the potential of AI-powered insights about your competitors and market. This course teaches you to be the mega-prompting maestro and transform ChatGPT into your personal research assistant. You can find out more by going to superproduct.tech and purchasing the course with special listener discount code NIGHT. Make sure you check the show notes for more details. So yes, on tonight's episode, we're going to talk all about going narrow to go wide in B2B startups, making sure you find crucially important problems to solve, and why your first hire probably shouldn't be a salesperson. We also reflect on why startup founders are heroes, and how we might help them avoid their kryptonite. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Richard Blundell. Richard's a growth consultant, author, and local radio DJ who says he's passionate about sports and an avid fan of West Ham Football Club, two concepts that you don't usually see in one sentence. Sorry, Richard, couldn't resist. Richard used to be the resort manager at a ski resort, but it wasn't for him, so he's now helping B2B SaaS founders find their balance and getting them out onto the steep, icy black pieces of running a startup with his consultancy as well as his new book, The Go-To-Market Handbook for B2B SaaS Leaders with which he promises to help you stack the odds in your favour when scaling your SaaS business. Hi, Richard. How are you tonight? Uh, what a brilliant introduction. I'm really good, Jason. <laughs> Thank you for that. I can't believe that you've, um, you've dragged up from the questions you make us ask uh, before. <laughs> uh, you, one of them is, uh, which job did you do particularly badly? And, and yeah, being a resort manager in a ski resort was, was the absolute you know, bottom of my career. But anyway, <laughs> it got better after that. Were you actually able to ski or was it, were you kind of yeah. a non-ski? Oh, you could at least ski. Think, you didn't get like snow cha- kicked in your face by the other skiers or anything like that. I think the challenge was I was doing too much skiing and not enough resort management. That's probably where <laughs> it all went wrong. Well, you can't uh, get high on your own supply, I guess. So it's probably That's true. for the best that you're back off the mountain and yes. helping people out with your book. But let's talk a little bit about that. But before we talk a little bit about that, you're the co-founder of Venture. Yeah, a B2B growth consultancy where you claim to be able to reignite your clients' growth. Mm-hmm. So I know what all of those words mean, but specifically what problems are you solving for your clients at Venture? Well, we have two sorts of customers that come to us, either very early stage founders, technical founders, who perhaps have raised some money, either seed, pre-seed. I mean, there's, there's so much confusion these days about the difference between seed, pre-seed, series A, you know, the, the numbers have changed all the time, but they've raised an amount of money. Very often they're technical founders. They've built a brilliant piece of software, but they're really unsure about how to go to market. It's a completely different set of skills from the technical abilities they've had. So they approach us and say, look, we'd like to get our head around, go to market. Where should we start? And I'm sure later in the podcast, we'll talk about where we start and why we start there. The second use case very often is businesses who same have got funded, have set off like a rocket. Uh, Everything's gone well. They've done year one. But sometime between year one and year two, the growth starts to slow and they can't really figure out why it's starting to slow. And they will then get in contact with us and ask us to come in and have a, a good long look at the business. But very often they'll blame the sales team. They'll sack the CRO. They'll say, <laughs> our sales team are awful and uh, they all need to go. 
And that may be the case, but very often we tend to swim upstream of the sales team up to the core value proposition, which is, you know, what is it that you, that you sell? Does it solve a visceral 3 a.m. stare at the ceiling pain for the customer? Is it a problem that might form part of their own objectives for the next 12 months? Because if it is, then you've dramatically stacked the odds in your favor of succeeding. So yeah, they're the two sorts of companies we work for. Early stage, technical, trying to get to market, or later stage, and it could be series A, series B, series C. We've done, you know, up to 30, 40 million pounds of turnover, but something's gone wrong. We've gone flat. The air's come out of our tires. Can you come and help us? Yeah, that's really interesting. The idea that that sales thing stalls and is that kind of, as you put it, the kind of staring up at the ceiling 3 a.m. problem. Yeah. Then that starts to make me think of the vitamin versus painkiller versus sweeties versus confectionery, whatever you want to call it. I have to translate that for my American listeners. But the basic idea that you've got to pick something that's really important. But on the other hand, I've reflected on that sort of vitamin painkiller analogy before. And there's a lot of people buying vitamins out there, right? Yeah. Does everything have to be a painkiller or can you even make something that's not a painkiller, but just a really good vitamin cell as well? Yeah, no, I think I think absolutely. I mean, I think the challenge um, for early stage businesses, uh, in fact, in either use case, really, is where are our next 25 customers going to come from? Where's our first 25? Where's our next 25 going to come from? So if we're brand new, we've got to get the flywheel spinning. And to do that, to stack the odds in your favor, if you're selling something that you have verified with people who you are planning to sell to is a genuine visceral pain their business is experiencing, you know, we're not getting our products to market fast enough. We're not shipping fast enough. We're not, we don't have enough visibility over our data. Whatever the use case might be, you need to prove that that is a genuine pain these organizations have. And in terms of speed to value, in terms of getting those first 25 customers absolutely bedded in, successfully implemented, which many software companies forget to do, they sell the software and then they worry about implementation <laughs> another day and then wonder why, the, wonder why the customer doesn't renew. And if the business has gone a bit flat and the air has gone out of the tires, it's the next 25 customers that that should be the core focus to get things up and running again, to get everybody happy again. And I think to do that, you need to be selling with a message that solves visceral pain. Will companies come to you and say, wow, I love your software. I love what you've done for ABC Limited, XYZ Limited, PLC, whatever. Of course they will. They'll respond to you because word will go around and what a great job you're doing. And they may well buy the product because it's more of a vitamin and something that they would like to have. But we always try and get our customers uncomfortably narrow around finding 25 to 50 customers, the next 50 customers who are feeling this pain. And we measure it in multiple levels. It could be time, it could be money, but actually the most important one of those is heartache, personal pain. You know, I can't go to another one-to-one meeting with my team moaning about the quality of our data. Why is a company like this that's so well-funded have such a poor process and it's in my remit it's in my in my area of business i want to be famous i want to be doing well in my business i must fix this those are the software products that go to the moon and the others take a lot longer the vitamins take a lot longer to get to scale but you talked a little bit about the funding models or the funding stages at least that you maybe go in and talk to it but mm. do you also then like, for example, what you say about going to the moon starts to sound more traditionally what you might expect from a, like a VC-backed firm, whereas maybe the slow and steady win the race might be more of a PE-backed firm, Yeah. although I'm sure they'll take the big wins if they can, but their risk appetite is maybe a little lower. Yeah. Do you feel that your approach that you champion either through your consultancy or the book that we're just about to talk about 
kind of fits both or do you think it more naturally lends itself more to one or the other? I think it's a really, really good question, Jason. I mean, one of the first questions we ask all our customers when we sit down with them for the first time is, what does good look like? What, what, what does an exit look like? Are you, are you trying to be a unicorn because they don't exist? Are you ready for the 24-7, you know, up at dawn, pride-swallowing siege of working with a tier one VC? Or are you looking for a, you know, what in my day used to be a really good exit, like 30, 40, 50 million. That used to be a really nice exit. For oh, yeah, you're, you're a chump now if you do that. Right? It's, just, it's, just, it's, like, it's not, it's not just, worth it. Why can't we just make a really good company that sells for 30, 40, 50 million? <laughs> so, you know, we, we, we kind of gauge the tone at that point. But every business, right, has to make sales and it has to grow and it has to satisfy its backers. And it doesn't matter whether you're, whether you're a tier one or a PE or a, or a tier two that want a slightly slower growth rate. For the confidence of your investors, for the confidence of your team, you know, we've got to get that next million of ARR on the board really quickly. So we do some maths right out the gate, which is, you know, what's your average case size? Oh, it's £25,000 a year. Great. How many cases do we have to do to get a million of ARR? We need to get 40. Okay, great. So let's write that number 40 on the board because getting our next million is really important to the business in any number of ways. Would you like to do that slowly or would you like to do that as quickly as you can? And invariably, people say, I'd like to do it as quick as I can, please, if that's all right, because I've got a burn, <laughs> I've got salaries to pay and so on and so forth. So I think it works in, in, either, in either essence. You know, and remember, we're working, as I say, with either newer stage businesses or businesses have gone flat and no one knows the reason why. And, you know, everybody would like to focus on that next million. So I, I think it works both ways. Oh, fair enough. Well, let's talk about that book then and mm. the kind of continuation of your efforts to ignite or reignite growth for B2B SaaS companies. So the book, Go to Market Handbook for B2B SaaS Leaders. I've read it, enjoyed it. But that was something that you wrote with your co-founder at Venture as well as a partner yeah. from Notion Capital. So you've got quite a heavyweight team together to write this book. Yeah. But what was it that made you decide to write a book in the first place? So another really good question. The answer actually <laughs> might be quite surprising is that we were finding it difficult weirdly enough, to explain what we did and to explain the process that we took businesses through. And we were sitting with a company we worked very closely who are inbound lead specialists called Grips. And they said, why the hell don't you write a book? You need to write down what you do because the process you take businesses through is, you know, is fantastic, but it's not written down and it needs a process and you should get on and do that. That was, that was in April. Oh, quick turnaround then, quick turnaround book. Yeah, not yeah. It was it was um it was it was amazing how it all I mean we do it all day every day. So we were just basically writing down what we do every day for our clients. But yeah, my co founder Paul Watson and Chris Topman at Notion Capital, who's a, a general partner at Notion founding partner, sorry, at Notion Capital, the three of us have been in business together since nineteen ninety five in one shape or another. We've been best friends for twenty eight years. We're very, very close as a three. We've either worked in the same business, founded the same businesses, invested in the same businesses. We're very, very tight. So yeah, the content came out very, very quickly. But the reason we wrote it was we couldn't articulate. I mean, it's unbelievable, right? This is what we do every day is we get companies to articulate their value proposition very well. But a bit like 70% of solicitors who died last year without writing a will, we were very bad, <laughs> you know, very bad at writing down our own value proposition. And those that have followed the company for a while would have seen that our website's completely changed now. Our value prop is much clearer. And the book was really just us saying there is a 10-phase journey that we take clients through that has a defined start, defined middle, and a defined end. And we have found with the clients we've worked and the 28 years we spent in software each 
And Chris obviously is now a, a VC, so he sees you know thousands of decks you know a year. And Paul and I are working with maybe ten to a, to a dozen businesses at any one time simultaneously. Let's just capture what it is that we do, and if we write it down and we break it down into workbooks, all of which are on our website. So if you if you if you don't want to spend the money on the book, you can go and read them one by one on the website. We've even <laughs> given it away, but it's much better in the book. Then yeah, that, they were the two principal reasons we we couldn't articulate our value prop very well. And the second reason I think was we looked around the market and we couldn't find a go to market handbook that had been written by people who've actually been in the field, who've actually gone out, been founders, had nothing, raised money, gone through that terrifying process that every founder goes through blown a sales budget, blown a marketing budget, missed a target, gone to countless board meetings with VCs screaming at us and what were you doing wrong, made way more mistakes than we had successes. And that's what we wanted to capture in the book was the the huge man traps that we'd fallen into uh, as the years had gone by. And we wanted to make sure that others didn't fall into that as well. And we looked for a book and there's lots of books written by people who sort of stood on the edges of the of the thing, but we wanted to sort of we wanted to have a sort of soldier story, you know, people who've sort of been in the battlefield and certainly bearing the bruises, bearing the scars. The three of us have talked to each other off so many ledges in the last 28 years, I can't, I can't tell you. <laughs> and I think you'll find, I mean, you read the book, it's full of stories about where we got it right, where we got it wrong, and just some really, I mean, we wanted it to be sort of thin and broad rather than deep. You know, I, I, I get quite frustrated picking up books that are about one good idea over 250 pages and after about two chapters or three chapters you've got the good idea and then the next seven chapters <laughs> they're kind of repeating it again and again so we thought let's do 10 workbooks we won't be able to cover everything in all of them but they can pick up the phone or they can get in contact with us or whatever but let's cover a lot of ground to give everybody you know some really really good tricks along the way so that's a long answer to a short question but you know why did we write the book because no one else had and we thought someone should there you go. That's the best origin story for any book. But yeah. I do think that kind of this book could be a blog post type mentality. I mean, I've definitely thought that about a number of books, including some quite popular ones. Yeah. And it's not to say, as you put it, that the idea isn't any good. I mean, the ideas are normally quite good, but Brilliant. they're just, yeah. yeah, like you say. It, it doesn't need a whole book. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, best, <laughs> the best book that I refer to, and I refer to it in the book, and it sits on my desk every day, is The Mum Test. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, which is Rob Fitzpatrick's book. Uh, it's 100 pages. It's a brilliant idea. It's short, succinct. That's all you need. This is what you need to do. This is how to ask, you know, and it's a starting point for where we are, how to talk to customers and learn if your business is a good idea when everyone else is lying to you. And I think that's <laughs> a really important place to start in, um, and we reference it in the book. I've never met Rob. I've never spoken to him, but I repeatedly mentioned his book i think his sales have gone up on the back of it but yeah short, you know short books with good ideas brilliant ideas but make them 80 pages not 300 because we get it right we get it in the first three pages no absolutely but writing a book with two authors is hard enough yeah but you've done it with three and i know you say you're close yeah but did you kind of just divide and conquer you all had your own different areas of speciality or are you all so close and so in tune that it was just a seamless process or did you end up arguing the toss about every single chapter and getting into big debates? <laughs> No, I mean, it's, I mean, weirdly enough, um, the, the, there's actually seven authors in the book. There's three that wrote the whole thing together. And then in four of the workbooks, we brought in four of the industry's absolute world-class specialists in their area. So product and pricing, for example, is an area that is just a real nail in the boot to nearly every SaaS business I've worked at. And there are very, very few outstanding 
product and pricing people. And we didn't feel qualified enough to write that, that workbook on our own. So we reached out to Andreas, who is also at Notion, and said, there's any chance you'd write a workbook with us. And the way that that worked was basically Andreas spoke to me for about four hours. I listened to everything he said. I, I um, with his permission, stole his images, stole a lot of his uh, methodology. I then sent back my version, having written it, and said, is this what we discussed and what we said? And that went backwards and forwards about 15 times. And then I added our own sort of flavor on top of that in terms of, you know, because this is very, very laser focused on product and pricing. And actually, the subject is wider than that, because you need to get intimate with your customers to get product and pricing right. So I wrote the product and pricing one with Andreas. Um, Cam wrote the how to build a armor piercing investor proposition with us. Now, he sees thousands and thousands a day and is one of the you know, one of the very, very best um, known and uh, knowledgeable people in the VC space works for a tier one VC. He he helped us write workbook 10, which is how to create an armor piercing investment proposition because most VCs just chuck him in the bin, you know, and we see hundreds. We do, we've done 250 deck hacks in the last 12 months, 14 months. I mean, I spend most of my time trying to work out what the hell the business does by looking at their website, <laughs> by trying to read the deck. And, and it shouldn't be like that. It should jump out at me smack me in the face and say, invest your money in, in, in my business. So yeah, and Paul Fifield did the sales chapter with us. We got Itasho to write the foreword. You know, we were really breast. And Steve and uh, Ben from Grips, who I mentioned before, they did the inbound leads workbook with us as well. So there was actually seven people to corral. But amazingly, it worked really well. I mean, I, I think probably because this ground hasn't been trodden a million times before. I, you know, I don't think there are many other, and I'm really happy if there are, by the way, but I don't find there are many other practitioner, you know, led books out there. All those people have been founders. All those people have failed. All those people have, have got bloody noses. And it actually flowed very, very well. I mean, we did a lot of moving chapters around and it actually took quite a while for that sequential order to come in place. And we put the investor proposition in workbook 10 when it could have come right at the start because we're always raising money, right, in software. But actually, it was great. And um, it was very much a question of, of me writing V1 and then letting Paul and Chris hack the crap out of it and change it around and change the verbiage and cut bits out. And it's not easy. I mean, Jason, you've written a book, haven't you? I mean, it's not easy. It's, no, no, not yet. But, but uh, one day, I've, I've well, got uh, one in mind. I've got one in mind. Yeah, I'm going to say you're, 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 you know, inexorably creative. So it has to be there. But anyone who's written a book will tell you that it's Nothing more soul-destroying than when you've written like, I don't know, five pages of brilliant prose and someone comes back to you and says, no, no, cut that out. It's rubbish. And uh, <laughs> you just have to take it on the chin, really. Yeah, that's but, why I've um, not written a book yet, by the way, just because I can't, <laughs> yeah. have, I can't have that conversation. It's brutal, I tell you. It's like, it's like um, I remember going around an art gallery once and the artist was in the gallery, you know, like they often are. And I happened to spot early on through his name tag who the artist was. So I had an eye on who it was, right? But no one else had really clocked it. And there's people standing there looking at his art, absolutely slating it, right? Don't get it, it's horrible, da-da. wouldn't have that in my house. And the artist is stood right next to him. I remember looking across to him and thinking, wow, that's a real gutsy thing. Anything creative, a song, a painting, a book, you know, I remember the day we hit the publish button and I was thinking, we've either written something really important here that people are going to love and value and share, and thank God they are, or we're going to write something that everyone's just going to laugh out and throw in the bin and it kind of destroys your career. So it's a brave thing to do, but God, it's so satisfying when you see people like yourself and others, you know, write such nice things on LinkedIn because it means the world to all the hours we put into it. 
Yeah, I've always been a big fan of giving fulsome credit to people if you do like, you know, and not just for people that write books, but for people that do anything, I think. Very generous. It's always nice to be told that you've done something well. And I definitely recommend to anyone listening to this, like even the smallest, kindest bit of feedback is always, yeah, it always helps, right? Like it's, it's, it's nice. A hundred percent. But speaking of the book, you say near the beginning that this book is written for people that you regard as heroes. Yeah. So these are the startup founders, the SaaS leaders that I'm now having uncomfortable images of dressed in spandex. <laughs> but we all know that starting a company is hard and yeah. no one has a higher stake in it than the people that start them. Yeah. But why do you specifically consider these people as heroes? Because they display bravery above and beyond the call of duty. And, and we speak from visceral experience of having done it many times ourselves. You know, the army call it the loneliness of leadership, and they wrap around so much care around their leaders to make them feel listened to, supported, encouraged. And look, they go through far, far worse things than any SaaS founder ever goes through. So God bless them for that. But, you know, founders come up with an idea. They then go to their friends and family, often their family, and ask them for some seed money. And mom or dad or grandpa or whatever comes up with 20, 30 grand, 50 grand to start this thing up. They go and write their software, they create their software, maybe they go to market, and out of 20 people they speak to, 19 of them will say no, and maybe one person will say yes. So they're getting 19 no's a day, right? They are living with the stress, often not paid in the early stages at all. They are taking their work home with them. They're, I think I put in the book, they're sort of present but not available at home with their family and their kids who often don't see them. They're under an enormous amount of pressure. They then might start hiring people when they're now responsible for payroll. They might start trying to hire people they've never hired before, nor ever worked successfully with before. So technical founders, how on earth does a technical founder know what a good sales director looks like or a CRO looks like? They've had no experience of doing it. Then a board gets formed and an investor comes in uh, and the investor just wants their 10 times return on their money. And let's be honest about it, you know, however altruistic investors might want to uh, appear to the wider world, and there's some brilliant threads on Twitter or X as it's called now, that you might want to might want to follow of some hysterical sort of VC feedback being kept, but you know they are there <laughs> for uncapped returns. That's what they want. I'll put in my million pounds, and I'd like you to bring me 10, 15 million pounds back. And they don't understand when it doesn't go swimmingly well. They don't understand what it's like to meet payroll at the end of the month. They don't understand what it's like to be the lead salesman in an organisation, which a founder should be and must be in in the early days, or the lead customer services rep, which they should be and must be in the early days. And, you know, I've used the phrase before, but it's an up at dawn, pride swallowing siege, being the founder of a SaaS business. And yeah, they have all my admiration. And, and I can say that because I've sat in that chair and I felt that gut wrenching end of month, end of quarter. What are the board going to say? No one's going to trust me. No one's going to like me. Everyone's going to laugh at me. Feeling that, that, that there is their own 3 a.m. visceral pain stare at the ceiling you know, sweaty nights of thinking this isn't going to work. And that's, you know, harking back to why we wrote the book is to say there is help out there. There's people who've been in your in the trenches for free. Give us a call, get in contact. We'll tell you how to deal with the board and how to manage that stress. But yeah, they're legends. And, and, and you know, the stats tell you that 999 out of 1,000 won't make it to become a unicorn. So look at the odds of that. And yet they still get up. They still come out swinging. They still come out fighting and yeah, they are, yeah, they're our heroes. And, um, I wish occasionally investors would remember before they completely destroy their founder or attack their founder 
of the genius that made you invest in them in the first place and think more about what help do they need alongside them rather than, you know, are they capable or not capable? This is very often for most SaaS founders, the first time they've ever led a business. And it's a lot different from leading the under 10 football team or whatever else we last captain. <laughs> you know, it's difficult and, and it requires a resilience, which is unquestioned. I think there are some really interesting points there. And one of the things that happens, and I'm sure you've seen this, maybe you've had it yourself when you've worked for other founders or you've seen it in companies that you've worked with, especially if things have maybe matured a little bit from that really early stage and they've started to become a proper company and like they've started to hire those people like you're talking about. And maybe then, yeah, they become one of those companies that you talk about where things start to flatline a little bit and maybe growth expectations aren't there and the VCs or the investors are starting to have a go at them and yeah, everything seems to kind of feel like it's not really going that well and it's quite common for the employees of that company to start kind of judging the the founders or the ceo as somewhat underperforming or or, or not really a hero at all they start yeah moaning and complaining and saying that they're not doing a good job and i'm not going to ever say that people shouldn't be held to account for doing a good job but do you think it's somewhat unfair for people that are kind of in the boat with the ceos to sort of start turning against their CEOs? Or do you think it's also the CEO or the founder's job to basically, I guess, address that and, and make sure that, that people do realize that, that they're not invincible people, that they are people just like everyone else. They've got the same problems as everyone else and that they should be kind of given some kind of leeway for that. Well, we talked about support and help just now and leaving comments and, and recognizing people's work and abilities. You know, the, the problem for a, a founder when things start going a bit flat is one of the first things that they might have missed is that their core value proposition that got them to where they got them in the first place has changed, right? Because chat GPT's come in or uh, Microsoft have picked up on it or Google have picked up on it and they're now cutting prices and they're offering a free service and they're now, you know, value propositions keep changing and, and that's invariably why, you know, a business is sort of, it's not closing as fast as it used to renewals aren't happening as easily as they used to. And, you know, when that happens, I'm a massive believer in you learn more about a leader and a team when things are going badly than when things are going well. And you don't have to be a sports lover, but we can all think of, you know, uh, let's take Manchester United now because everyone likes talking about Manchester United, right? One of the biggest football teams in the world. I'm more interested in what happens when things don't go well for them than when things are going well. Do they start questioning the referee, moaning at the at the press? Do the managers start complaining about this and it's not fair? And da, 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 da. Or do they just belt up, buckle in, and come back stronger and learn from their mistakes and learn that life isn't isn't easy? I've been a founder where you know and it's happened to me on more than one occasion, or actually a leader, a CEO, where my team have kind of turned on me, and you know when the ideas start running dry, and it, and all the focus sort of turns onto one person who's had to maybe be the lead salesman, as I said, maybe had to, to be the most intimate person with the customers that they can be, has to do all the speeches, has to do all the presentations, own the brand, run the board meeting, run the management team. I mean, talk about heroes. This is an incredibly difficult job. And that is why, you know, not everybody can do it brilliantly. I think the question, to answer your question, I think the most important things when things start going badly or slowing down is not to start pointing the finger, but to say, why? Why has this happened? You know, we have a, a big blame culture, in, particularly in Britain, right? Less so in the States, but in, in Britain, well, it's your fault. Oh, it's that fault. It's, all, it's because it's indoctrinated us in the news. 
you know, in, in the BBC and in, in, in all, all news, right? You know, who can we hang out to dry for COVID? You know, who can we blame? Who can we? Now, there may be people to blame and that will come out in the, in the wash, but I'm much more interested in what can we learn from it? What can we learn for the next time it happens? We can't change the past, but we, we might be able to change the future. And, and I think the first question that should be asked when things start slowing down is, is our value prop, our core value prop, the thing that we hold to be the most dearest, still true with our customers? Do we have competition? Are they, is their eye being taken off by someone offering a cheaper price? Is it just the sales team or is it actually that what we're selling just isn't very good anymore or isn't good enough anymore and it needs to be refreshed and sharpened like a pencil that's gone blunt and, and refined? And, and the only way of doing that is to get your whole team together and say, can we all agree? And this is workbook one of the book. Can we all agree on what our core value prop is? And, and do we see it all in the same way? And you'll be amazed. You will be absolutely amazed, Jason, the number of hours Paul and I have spent in boardrooms with teams that simply can't agree what their core value proposition is. <laughs> oh, I won't be amazed at all, by the way. I won't be amazed You might at have all. the founder thinking one thing. You might have the sales guy thinking something else. The website, I mean, you, you've read the book. You know, we go on about this a lot. The website doesn't say anything close to what the core, you know, value prop is. It's just, it's been lost in translation. It, it tells me what you do, but not the so what. You know, it tells me how you do it, but not the why. I want to know why I should buy your product. I'm a buyer. I stop on your website, jump out at me with a message that makes me think, well, I've got that problem. You know, and, and the only analogy I can give is, is, um, you know, if you're going to open a hotel, today's Monday, you're going to open a hotel on Saturday, uh, and the fire inspector comes around and says that your fire extinguishers uh, are all broken, and you need to sort that in the next 24 hours, or you won't be opening on Saturday, because you can't, it's against the law. And you happen to land on my website, and I'm selling, you know, same day delivery fire extinguishers, that person is going to come into your site, fill out your form, get in contact, pick up the phone, and inbound to you massively rapidly. So the story you have to tell in your core value proposition has to match the pain that the person that's buying the, you know, the product or wants to buy the product off you you has. So yeah, step number one: get the team together, get some whiteboard, get you know, whiteboards, get some flip charts, get some marker pens up, and say, right, is this our core value proposition? Here is our persona. This is our FD. This is our CFO, uh, CEO, whoever you're selling to, HR director, head of people. Right, this is who we're selling to. Everyone agree? Yeah, great. Okay. Better check that see who we're selling to, just in case. <laughs> right, what pains are we solving? What's the world look like before we started? Well, it looks like this and this and that's broken and that's broken. We do this and do that and that's what happens to the internal team and that's their frustrations. Okay, and how does that project onto their customers and their partners and their suppliers and their legislators or whoever, whoever's checking they're doing the, the, the right thing? And you draw the lines in and you show where things are broken. And at that point, you should be listening to your team. It's why external facilitation is a really good job because if you're doing it yourself, it's very hard to be subjective doing this. But that's not an advert. But just you know, external. <laughs> no, we can both advertise there. That's fine. <laughs> but what you're looking for is very often the quietest voice in the corner, the product guy, the engineer, the technical guy. He goes, "No, no, no, no. That's not what we do." The customer services person who spends time with customers and says, "What I found our customers really like about our product." is blank, blank, and blank, because it saves them this, and it saves them that, and that's why they renewed, and I've seen that five or six times, and actually stop selling this bit, start selling this bit, because this is the bit they really, really like. They can buy that bit anywhere, cheap as chips, but we've got a unique secret source in our product over here. And I think get that proposition 
agreed internally, get everyone. It's a really painful process, by the way. It takes four, five, six weeks, lots of arguments. But when you've all agreed that's your value prop, if you can't agree your value prop and express your value prop internally, when you project that onto the world, it gets dissolved into a million pieces. It just, it just loses focus. It has to be laser sharp. So yeah, I think rather than sitting around saying they're to blame or they're to blame, sit down and say, why has this gone wrong? And is our value proposition as armor piercing as it was the day we raised money? And if it's not, what are we going to do about it? Okay, so let's step beyond blame yeah. for a second. And let's accept that the founder, probably the CEO, is still a hero, even after all that stuff's just happened. Yeah. But all heroes have weak spots, right? Like, yeah. Like Superman's got his kryptonite. Achilles has got his heel. A bunch of others have all got their own different weaknesses as well. And you've worked with a lot of them. Yeah. You've just described some of the characteristics of organizations that have maybe lost their way a little bit, not really got the alignment that they need, not really kind of all on the same page. Yeah. So what are some of the common weaknesses or blind spots that affect the founders in this sort of situation? Because even if we don't blame them, they're still responsible for the company, right? Like, what are some of the blind spots that lead them into this situation in the first place? Yeah, and job number one is you've got to know there's a problem, right? You've got to do that self-reflection and realize what you're strong on and what you're not strong at. I think for technical founders, it's got to be sales. You know, they've built a brilliant product. People have invested in them because they are a genius that they created the product that they've created. They didn't invest in them because they are the best salesperson or the best marketeer they've ever seen. So my plea to any technical founder is don't try and be king of every country. <laughs> you know, you've got to understand that, that there are certain bits that, that are going to be blind spots to you. And it would be completely freakish if you were good at both. So reach out for go-to-market help. So that, that's, a, that's a blind spot we see. I think Paul sums this up very well. I think another weakness we often see is we want everything to be okay. And I think we miss our kind of, we have a natural kind of filter on our own preconceptions that, that, that's a bias, you know, when we talk to our customers. Because, you know, the, the brilliance of the mum test and, and why they're, the question set they pull out is, uh, Rob pulls out, is so clever. It's because you're asking them, you're asking your customers to be brutally honest with you. You're asking them to, in a refined context, you know, it's a very British thing not to say something horrible to someone. So, so when someone brings you up and says, uh, is our product any good? Oh, yes, it's lovely, Richard. Well done. You know, we're really, really pleased with it. It's fantastic. What you're not asking is, have you got budget to renew? Or have you seen three competitors in the last three months? And are, is their product different? Or is their product better? So I think it's really, really important that, you know, if you're a technical founder, get really good sales support and sales help. It's out there. I think if you're a founder that's kind of not sure where things have gone wrong, the value proposition is a good place to start. Equally well, Founders often find themselves being drifted away from their customers because they've now got a CS person or somebody else. They've lost that intimacy with their customers who in the first place believed in them enough to part with their company's money to get them to solve a problem that they had. And, and, and the very best founders make those early stage customers their friends. So have you got blindsided or have you forgotten who your customers are? How joined up is your sales and marketing function? Are they starting to blame each other? Oh, I'm not getting enough good leads. Oh, the leads are wrong. Oh, the message is wrong. Oh, it's not me. It's not us. It's, it's whatever. So I, th I think it's it, the starting point in, in spotting your weaknesses. The founder's got to have the humility to be able to say, what am I good at and what am I not good at? And stay in your swim lane of what you're good at and get other people in to help you with bits you're, you're not good at. You know, if you're a commercially driven leader or CEO, 
what's your product guy like? I'd really look to your product team and your technical team, your engineering team, you know, stuff that you do, Jason. You get get your product guy. You know, for me, product CPOs are mini CEOs, right? They've got to sit there and they've got to look at how much this product costs to build, how much does it cost to serve, how much does it cost to execute, what does the renewals look like? You know, that's what your product person's giving you. Your technical guy, you know, have they over-engineered the product? Have they built it's very common, you know, mantra for early stage businesses to fall into to keep building more and more and more product, like running across a virtual machine gun nest, you know, hoping that you don't get shot at. And then when <laughs> it stops firing, you go, Oh, that's the product that works. So have you over-egged the products? You know, I think it's, and by the way, I think it's, it's impossible to do this yourself. It's impossible to do this subjectively. You have to find a friend or someone that's not your board because they, they expect you to have the answer. It's not your team because they're already looking at you going, what the hell's going on? It may or may not be your peers on the C-suite in where you're at. Try and find someone from outside who, there's that great story, isn't there, about the guy walking down the street and he falls in a massive great hole. And the vicar, his vicar walks past him and he goes, Reverend, Reverend, I'm stuck in this hole. Can you help me out? And the, the vicar writes him a prayer and, and throws the prayer down the hole and says, I'll pray for you, you know, my son. Uh, and then the doctor, you know, walks past. He goes, Doctor, Doctor, I'm down this hole. Can I, can you help me? And he, and he, he writes a prescription and throws a prescription down the hole saying, this is what you'll need when you get out. And then, you know, finally his best mate's walking down the road and he jumps in the hole. And our guy says, you know, what the hell have you done? Now we're both in the hole. And his best friend says, yeah, but I've been in this hole before. I know the way out. Oh, that's deep. You have to find... No pun intended. Yeah, but you have to find people who've been in this hole who can come in subjectively and say, do you know what I think's going wrong? This is not working and this is not working and this is not working. There are lots of good people out there that can do that. It's very hard to do subjectively, but get someone to come and do an MOT on the business, get, you know, an MRI scan. Do an MRI scan and tell me what's working and what's not. That's a great step. Well, as someone who offers such scans, I'm obviously going to be in favor of that. But one of the things yeah. that one of the things that does come up and kind of to my mind at least can be one of the root causes of some of the scenarios that you've described already is the fact that B2B founders like you've you've said already that they should be the first salesperson, right? Mm. But that they're often tempted, maybe because they're not good at that or they don't think they're good at that, mm. to get ahead of sales in relatively early. I know you don't recommend that in a book. You say, again, that they should get at least to grips with the fundamentals of, of sales and be the advocate for their product or for their company. But what I've seen in some situations is you get like that early head of sales in. Maybe they don't do a lot of due diligence around the type of salesperson that they get in. They get some kind of lone wolf in that just mm. goes and sells to their roller decks and just goes very wide. Yeah. The complete opposite of what you recommend with like really niching down. Yeah. And they end up just, with such a disconnected set of customers that they've sold to, like anyone that could remotely vaguely use their product, yeah, they end up with a product that doesn't really solve any problem well enough for anyone to really be super happy with it, but it solves enough of a problem to make everyone equally kind of unhappy with it. So I know, obviously, again, you've said that you recommend getting uncomfortably narrow. Why do you think it's so tricky for some leadership teams within B2B organizations to kind of maintain that discipline rather than ending up spraying and praying as you've kind of described yourself as well? Yeah, well, I'll answer the second half of that first and then the first half of that second, that's okay. Absolutely. I mean, you end up with this kind of, you end up with this kind of Swiss army knife, don't you? And, and you've worked with other companies in, in product where you've got, you know, the, the knife, which is actually what we all should be selling. 
but then you've got the magnifying glass and the thing that gets stones out of horses' hooves and you get the saw and you get the tweezers, which everybody loses. And <laughs> you end up with this product that everybody has kind of bought a little bit of for different reasons. And that's very hard to scale because do you, do you sell more magnifying glasses or more horse dehoofers or whatever? And that's, that's a very common thing because when you're, when you're broke and you're setting up a business and you've taken people's money off them, you're just pleased anyone says yes, right? You're, you just want anyone to say, yes, please, I'll buy your product. That's fantastic. And if you haven't analyzed why they bought the product and how easily they found it to implement and, and integrate into their processes and into other technologies, if you haven't found that out, then you end up with this sort of Swiss army knife of a product that's sort of a jack of all trades and a master of none. And getting back to that narrow thing, like what is it that we do better than anybody else? What is, you know, what is our knife? What is the cutting edge of where it's at? And trust me, every founder we work with hates getting narrow because they're like, <laughs> but I want to sell over here and I want to sell over here. It's like, you can, you can, and we will sell to all those people because they will come to us and we will respond to them. But in terms of our marketing message and how we go to market, we're going to get narrow around the knife because we believe the knife and we're going to test it. And if you read the book, workbook two is all about testing your thesis to make sure you're right. So yeah, it's a very, very common problem. But I want to go back to the first point, which was, which was about you know founders come to us and say, particularly technical founders, and say, oh, I'm no good at sales. I can't sell. And these are people that have created a deck, have gone out around thousands of people in with turned up collars and stripy suits in the city that have said no to them time and time and time again, have said things like, please keep in touch, or you're too small for us, or your Tam's too small, or your Sam's too small, or they've had more no's than they've ever can wave a stick at. And yet they have convinced on the back of some software, a few early customers, and, and, a, and a, an investor deck to get an investor to part with half a million pounds or a million pounds. And you tell me you're not a salesman. I mean, that requires a resilience and a focus on message and a, a iteration of your message and of your deck beyond, above and beyond you know, anything that a founder can do. So don't tell me, Mr. Founder, however technical you are, that you're not a salesman when you just raised a load of money from a VC because you know, chapeau to you, sir. You, you know, you've done an, or, or madam, you've done an incredible job at doing that. And we do recommend in the book that the first five to ten customers are led by the founder because who else do you trust in those stages to have the passion for your software and your product other than yourself? Right? You're the one that saw the problem, saw the pain, has spent hours at midnight building the solution, building the website. Who else can project that passion better than yourself? And I think your customers will love it for you and they'll smell that passion in you. And actually, they'll quite like it if you don't sell to them because they don't like being sold to. They like being uh, listened to, actually, is what they like being. And technical founders are often much better at listening to customers' problems than, than any other. And I don't want to go flying off on a tangent again, but you know, the greatest salesmen in the world are doctors, GPs. And I didn't, this is the bit that got cut out of the book, actually. So this is an excerpt that's not in the <laughs> book. They, they said, they said it's, not, it's not relevant, but I think it is because Look, nearly everybody turns up to a meeting with a GP. I mean, I know not everyone does, but a massive majority do. And when you go in and see a GP, a GP sits and asks you dozens and dozens and dozens of questions from different angles about what hurts and what's not working and what's painful. Yeah. And then once they've listened, they might send you away. They might send you for more tests and more diagnostics. And then you'll come back again. They'll say, right, we've had a look at this. We've had a look at that. And my diagnosis is that you take these pills or this lotion or this whatever, and here's the prescription. And the customer goes straight to the shop and buys that prescription straight out of the gate almost 100% of the time. 
Now, what have they done? What they've done is they've listened. They've asked great questions. They've talked about your pain a lot and what hurts and what's broken. They then diagnose their product in a way that makes it feel like they haven't diagnosed the same product the last 10 people that came in with exactly the same diagnosis you have. It feels unique. It feels original. You feel looked after. And then you go and buy a product. What a lot of poor salespeople do is they walk into a sales meeting, they open up their laptop and they say, let me show you my product. Now, the, the analogy going back to the doctor would be if you went to see the doctor and he said, well, what would you like today? Do you want my green pills, my blue pills or my red pills? You're going to go, I don't, I don't know because I'm not an expert. I don't know which one I want. And you're going to completely lose your credibility and lose your value, right? So asking about pain and talking about pain and why we focus on customer pain so much is all about that analogy. But to go back to the point, founders are great salesmen. They should do their first five to 10 sales themselves because who else can have the passion? And actually, the reason we say hire a CS person next and not go out and hire you know, a 200 grand a year CRO is because we need someone to give us intimate feedback on that first year of installations on those first 25 customers because we need to find where they're finding value. Because if we find out where their value is, if they say something like your customer says, Wow, that thing you gave us, that dashboard, saves us hours of time. Our, our CEO logs into it every day. He absolutely loves it. He's so pleased that we've done that. He can see what's going on now. Then you now immediately know you've got something incredibly valuable in your product set, which can help you price your product properly, package your product properly for the vertical that you're in. So we think the next person to hire is a CS person who can then help build the evidence. And by the way, they will have the biggest book of evidence to hand on to your salesperson when you ultimately hire them because they've sat in the chair with the customer and they've downloaded all that stuff and they now give the playbook to the salesperson and say hit these buttons because these buttons work so yeah i i I think it's a huge decision to take on a cro right and it's like i think if founders think we're not hitting numbers we need to start selling are going to go and hire a cro and the answer that might be the answer but i'm going to say nine times out of ten it isn't until you've checked You've got genuine product market fit on the first 10 to 15 customers that you've taken on board. And product market fit is not what some people say it is, which is you've got 15 customers paying you 20 grand a year. That is not product market fit. That's an indication of commercial, a lead indicator of commercial success. Product market fit is 25 successfully installed customers who love the products, have had it integrated into their processes and into the technologies they use, couldn't think about using anything else. And when you've got your 25 and you've got your bedrock in, then you can start thinking about hiring a full-time head of sales, but not until then. Well, fair enough. But I do have one bone to pick with you about this book. I mean, I did say that I enjoyed the book and I stand by that, (laughs) but I do have a bone to pick with you, given that this podcast is aimed at people who build market products. And obviously part of that cohort are the long-suffering product managers of the world. Yes. And I did do a search in the book and the word product manager appears once in the entire book. Does it? <laughs> so what have you got against us poor PMs? Nothing. I mean, you are, uh, <laughs> you know, in terms of creativity, I mean, there are different kinds of product managers, right? There's the more yes. sort of technical facing ones and there's the more commercial facing ones. And if you've got the skills to do both, they are absolutely worth their weight in gold. I would almost, you know, hire a product manager before I hired a salesperson other than the fact that I have to get the scoreboard moving and I have to get those first 25 sales on the board or the next 25 sales on the board. And perhaps we should write an 11th workbook or a separate book on our own about the importance of product management, product owners. Some of the best people I have ever worked with 
in my business career have been product managers and product owners. Now, I might be quite biased because I love talking about product and product marketing and product messaging, but they are kings and queens in a business. And if you get a great one, hold on to them as tightly as you possibly can because they are few and far between. But as I said before, they are mini CEOs. They they have to understand profit loss. They have to understand customer expectations. They have to be connected to CS. They have to be connected to sales and to and to marketing. So no, I mean, absolutely nothing against them. I guess if you've got investors screaming at you saying, I need more sales, I need more sales, that would come in the next book, probably beyond you know the startup phase and, and, and into, into that area. So nothing against them at all. It's vitally important. I think you've got to, you know, if you're on a deck and you haven't got a lot of cash and money's tight, I think you have to lead the line on the sales front. You have to lead the line on CS, but then get a CS person in to support you. I'm hoping that in that stage, you as a founder and your engineering team and your CS team are laying the groundwork like they are for sales for your product person to come in and say, right, that's the core product one. We need to articulate that. Where do we go with our upsells and our and our, our next products and so on and so forth? So yeah, we're probably a bit early stage, but that would be the very next hire. Well, fingers crossed they have a good one when the time is right. Yeah. Yeah, they're worth their weight in gold. <laughs> Absolute weight in gold. I of course agree. Well, that's fair enough. I'll uh, I'll put the pitchforks away. But whilst I'm doing that, where can people find you after this if they want to find out more about venture, chat with you about some of the topics in the book, find some of your workbooks, or see if they can get you to write that book 11. Yeah. Or see if they can score some spare tickets to a West Ham game. Yeah. I tell you what, somebody should write that book 11, workbook 11, because we always intended the book to be ever increasing and ever changing. You know, we, we've always said if someone's got a section of the book that hasn't been written, then, you know, it's done on Amazon, right? It's not rocket science. You upload another version and you get a version two now, including the product area. So um, but the answer to your question is Paul and I can be found at venture.team, T-E-A-M. So venture is spelled V-E-N-C-H-A dot team. And because we're down with the kids, right? <laughs> and all the workbooks are on there. Have a look at one of them. Paul and I have done videos that accompany each of the workbooks. So that helps as well. We charge nothing for the first hour or so. So if you'd like to reach out and find out more about us and what we do, We've done 250 debt hacks for a reason because we are massive about paying it forward, which we, we mentioned in the book a lot to an industry that served us so well. Because, you know, despite all these minefields, we have had quite a lot of successes as well, which is great. So just reach out. You know, these people are anybody that works in SaaS is a legend. This isn't easy, right? We're working in a world where businesses are trying to get rid of software, not buy software, where they are, we're living in an economy which is, which is tight, which is difficult to, to make tons of money. So, Anyone who works in SaaS is very welcome to reach out to us. Richard at Venture.team is my email address. Paul at Venture.team is Paul's. But Venture.team is full of videos, workbooks, ideas. Read it, and I really hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm sure they will, but I'll make sure to link all of that information into the show notes, and hopefully you get a few people heading in your direction and watching your videos and uh, pausing at all the right bits. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really glad we could spend some time talking about some ways that our heroes can be even more heroic. Yes. Uh, hopefully we can stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Jason. You're a legend. Thank you. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com 
Check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.